as a matter of names and words and nothing more, a huge shadow, a form of pot-acting, a vast sham. The last novel, the latest news from France, India, Australia, Turkey, or New York, all these are things they realize, they feel interested and excited about them. But as to the Bible and heaven and the kingdom of Christ and the judgment day, these are subjects that they hear unmoved. They do not really believe them. If Layard had dug up at Nineveh anything damaging the truth and authority of the Old Testament scriptures, it would not have interfered with their peace for an hour. If you have unhappily got into this frame of mind, I charge you to cast it off forever. Whether you mean to hear or forbear, awaken to a thorough conviction that the things I have brought before you are real and true. The wheat, the chaff, the separation, the garner, the fire, all these are great realities, as real as the sun in heaven, as real as the paper which your eyes behold. For my part, I believe in heaven, and I believe in hell. I believe in a coming judgment. I believe in a day of sifting. I am not ashamed to say so. I believe them all, and therefore write as I do. Oh, take a friend's advice. Live as if these things were true. Two, settle it down in your mind in the second place that the things of which I write concern yourself. They are your business, your affair, and your concern. Many, I am satisfied, never look on religion as a matter that concerns themselves. They attend on its outward part as a decent and proper fashion. They hear sermons, they read religious books, they have their children christened, but all the time they never ask themselves, what is all this to me? They sit in our churches like spectators in a theater or court of law. They read our writings as if they were reading a report of an interesting trial or of some event far away. But they never say to themselves, I am the man. If you have this kind of feeling, depend upon it, it will never do. There must be an end of all this if ever you are to be saved. You are the man I write to, whoever you may be who reads this paper. I write not specially to the rich. I write not specially to the poor. I write to everybody who will read whatever his rank may be. It is on your soul's account that I am pleading and not another's. You are spoken of in the text that begins this paper. You are this very day either among the wheat or among the chaff. Your portion will one day either be the garner or the fire. Oh, that men were wise and would lay these things to heart. Oh, that they would not trifle, dally, linger, live on half and half Christians, meaning well, but never acting boldly, and at last awake when it is too late. 3. 
Settle it down in your mind in the third place that if you are willing to be one of the wheat of the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ is willing to receive you. Does any man suppose that Jesus is not willing to see his garner filled? Do you think he does not desire to bring many sons to glory? Oh, but you little know the depth of his mercy and compassion if you can think such a thought. He wept over unbelieving Jerusalem. He mourns over the impenitent and the thoughtless in the present day. He sends you invitations by my mouth this hour. He invites you to hear and live, to forsake the way of the foolish and go in the paths of understanding. As I live, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dieth. Turn ye, turn ye, why will ye die? Ezekiel 18, verse 32. Oh, if you never came to Christ for life before, come to him this very day. Come to him with the penitence prayer for mercy and grace. Come to him without delay. Come to him while the subject of this paper is still fresh on your mind. Come to him before another sun rises on the earth and let the morning find you a new creature. If you are determined to have the world and the things of the world, its pleasures and its rewards, its follies and its sins, if you must have your own way and cannot give up anything for Christ and your soul, if this be your case, there is but one end before you. I fairly warn you, I plainly tell you, you will sooner or later come to the unquenchable fire but if any man is willing to be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ stands ready to save him. Come unto me, he says, weary soul, and I will give you rest. Come, guilty and sinful soul, and I will give you free pardon. Come, lost and ruined soul, and I will give you eternal life. Matthew 11:28. Let that passage be a word in season. Arise and call upon the Lord. Let the angels of God rejoice over one more saved soul. Let the courts of heaven hear the good tidings that one more lost sheep is found. For settle it down in your mind, last of all, that if you have committed your soul to Christ, Christ will never allow that soul to perish. The everlasting arms are round about you. Lean back in them and know your safety. The same hand that was nailed to the cross is holding you. The same wisdom that framed the heavens and the earth is engaged to maintain your cause. The same power that redeemed the twelve tribes from the house of bondage is on your side. The same love that bore with and carried Israel from Egypt to Canaan is pledged to keep you. Yes, they are well kept whom Christ keeps. Our faith may repose calmly on such a bed as Christ's omnipotence. Take comfort, doubting believer. Why are you cast down? The love of Jesus is no summer day fountain. 
no man ever yet saw its bottom. The compassion of Jesus is a fire that never yet burned low. The cold gray ashes of that fire have never yet been seen. Take comfort. In your own heart, you may find little cause for rejoicing, but you may always rejoice in the Lord. You say your faith is so small, but where is it said that none shall be saved except their faith be great? And after all, who gave thee any faith at all? The very fact that you have any faith is a token for good. You say your sins are so many, but where is the sin or the heap of sins that the blood of Jesus cannot wash away? And after all, who told thee thou hadst any sins? That feeling never came from thyself. Blessed indeed is that mother's child who really knows and feels that he is a sinner. Take comfort, I say once more, if you have really come to Christ. Take comfort and know your privileges. Cast every care on Jesus. Tell every want to Jesus. Roll every burden on Jesus. Sins, unbelief, doubts, fears, anxieties. Lay them all on Christ. He loves to see you doing so. He loves to be employed as your high priest. He loves to be trusted. He loves to see his people ceasing from the vain effort to carry their burdens for themselves. I commend these things to the notice of everyone into whose hand this volume may fall. Only be among Christ's wheat now, and then, in the great day of separation, as sure as the Bible is true, you shall be in Christ's garner hereafter. Chapter 21 Eternity The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18 A subject stands out on the face of this text which is one of the most solemn and heart-searching in the Bible. That subject is eternity. We see in the footnote The following pages contain the substance of a sermon which I preached by invitation in the nave of Petersborough Cathedral on the fourth Sunday in Advent, 1877. The substance and not the precise words. The plain truth is that the sermon was not intended for publication. It was preached from notes and was one of those popular addresses which will not bear close reporting, a style of language which satisfies the ear when listened to will seldom satisfy the mind when read. On receiving a manuscript report from the publisher, I soon found that it would require far more labor to condense, correct, paragraph, punctuate, and prepare the sermon for the press than to write it out roughly from my own notes and recollection. From want of time, I had no alternative but to adopt this course or to object altogether to publication. The result is that the reader has before him the matter, order, 
heads, arrangements, and principal thoughts of my sermon, and not, I repeat, the precise words. Unquote. The subject is one of which the wisest man can only take in a little. We have no eyes to see it fully, no line to fathom it, no mind to grasp it, and yet we must not refuse to consider it. There are star depths in the heavens above us which the most powerful telescope cannot pierce, yet it is well to look into them and learn something if we cannot learn everything. There are heights and depths about the subject of eternity which mortal man can never comprehend. But God has spoken of it, and we have no right to turn away from it altogether. The subject is one which we must never approach without the Bible in our hands. The moment we depart from God's Word written in considering eternity and the future state of man, we are likely to fall into error. In examining points like these, we have nothing to do with preconceived notions as to what is God's character and what we think God ought to be, or ought to do with man after death. Again, we read from the footnote, What sentence can we expect from a judge who at the same time that he calls in witnesses and pretends to examine them, makes a declaration that, however, let them say what they will, the cause is so absurd, is so unjust, that no evidence will be sufficient to prove it. Horbury, Volume 2, page 137. We have only to find out what is written, what saith the Scripture, what saith the Lord? It is wild work to tell us that we ought to have noble thoughts about God, independent of and over and above Scripture. Natural religion soon comes to a standstill here. The noblest thoughts about God which we have a right to hold are the thoughts which He has been pleased to reveal to us in His written Word. I ask the attention of all into whose hands this paper may fall while I offer a few suggestive thoughts about eternity. As a mortal man, I feel deeply my own insufficiency to handle this subject. But I pray that God, the Holy Ghost, whose strength is made perfect in weakness, may bless the words I speak and make them seeds of eternal life in many minds. One the first thought which I commend to the attention of my readers is this. We live in a world where all things are temporal and passing away. That man must be blind indeed who cannot realize this. Everything around us is decaying, dying, and coming to an end. There is a sense, no doubt, in which matter is eternal. Once created, it will never entirely perish. But in a popular, practical sense, there is nothing undying about us except our souls. No wonder the poet says, Change and decay in all around I see. O thou that changest not, abide with me. We are all going, 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 whether high or low, 
gentle or simple, rich or poor, old or young. We are all going and shall soon be gone. Beauty is only temporal. Sarah was once the fairest of women and the admiration of the court of Egypt. Yet a day came when even Abraham, her husband, said, Let me bury my dead out of my sight. Genesis 23.4 Strength of body is only temporal. David was once a mighty man of valor, the slayer of the lion and the bear and the champion of Israel against Goliath. Yet a day came when even David had to be nursed and ministered to in his old age like a child. Wisdom and power of brain are only temporal. Solomon was once a prodigy of knowledge, and all the kings of the earth came to hear his wisdom. Yet even Solomon, in his latter days, played the fool exceedingly, and allowed his wives to turn away his heart. 1 Kings 11, verse 2 Humbling and painful as these truths may sound, it is good for us all to realize them and lay them to heart. The houses we live in, the homes we love, the riches we accumulate, the professions we follow, the plans we form, the relations we enter into, they are only for our time. The things seen are temporal, the fashion of this world passeth away. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 31 The thought is one which ought to rouse everyone who is living only for this world. If his conscience is not utterly seared, it should stir in him great searchings of heart. Lord, take care what you are doing. Awake to see things in their true light before it should be too late. The things you live for now are all temporal and passing away. The pleasures, the amusements, the recreations, the merrymakings, the profits, the earthly callings, which now absorb all your heart and drink up all your mind, will soon be over. They are poor, ephemeral things which cannot last. Oh, love them not too well. Grasp them not too tightly. Make them not your idols. You cannot keep them, and you must leave them. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then everything else shall be added to you. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. O oh, you that love the world, be wise in time. Never, never forget that it is written, The world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Colossians 3, 2, 1 John 2, verse 17. The same thought ought to cheer and comfort every true Christian. Your trials, crosses, and conflicts are all temporal. They will soon have an end, and even now they are working for you a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. Take them patiently. Bear them quietly. Look upward, forward, onward, and far beyond them. Fight your daily fight under an abiding conviction that it is only for a little time, and that rest is not far off.
carry your daily cross with an abiding recollection that it is one of the things seen which are temporal. The cross shall soon be exchanged for a crown, and you shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Two, the second thought which I commend to the attention of my readers is this. We are all going towards a world where everything is eternal. That great unseen state of existence which lies behind the grave is forever. Whether it be happy or miserable, whether it be a condition of joy or sorrow, in one respect, it is utterly unlike this world. It is forever. There, at any rate, will be no change and decay, no end, no goodbye, no mornings and evenings, no alteration, no annihilation. Whatever there is beyond the tomb when the last trumpet is sounded and the dead are raised will be endless, everlasting and eternal. The things unseen are eternal. We cannot fully realize this condition, the contrast between now and then, between this world and the next, is so enormously great that our feeble minds will not take it in. The consequences it entails are so tremendous that they almost take away our breath and we shrink from looking at them. But when the Bible speaks plainly, we have no right to turn away from a subject, and with the Bible in our hands, we shall do well to look at the things which are eternal. Let us settle it then in our minds for one thing, that the future happiness of those who are saved is eternal. However little we may understand it, it is something which will have no end. It will never cease, never grow old never decay, never die. At God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16.11 Once landed in paradise, the saints of God shall go out no more. The inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, and fadeth not away. They shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. 1 Peter 1, verse 4 and 5, verse 4 their warfare is accomplished. Their fight is over. Their work is done. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. They are traveling on towards an eternal weight of glory, towards a home which shall never be broken up, a meeting without a parting, a family gathering without a separation, a day without night. Faith shall be swallowed up in sight and hope in certainty. They shall see as they have been seen and know as they have been known and be forever with the Lord. I do not wonder that the Apostle Paul adds, comfort one another with these words. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18. Let us settle it for another thing in our minds that the future misery of those who are finally lost is eternal. This is an awful truth, I am aware, and flesh and blood naturally shrink from the contemplation of it. 
but I am one of those who believe it to be plainly revealed in Scripture, and I dare not keep it back in the pulpit. To my eyes, eternal future happiness and eternal future misery appear to stand side by side. I fail to see how you can distinguish the duration of one from the duration of the other. If the joy of the believer is forever, the sorrow of the unbeliever is also forever. If heaven is eternal, so likewise is hell. It may be my ignorance, but I know not how the conclusion can be avoided. I cannot reconcile the non-eternity of punishment with the language of the Bible. Its advocates talk loudly about love and charity and say that it does not harmonize with the merciful and compassionate character of God. But what saith the Scripture? Whoever spoke such loving and merciful words as our Lord Jesus Christ, yet his are the lips which three times over describe the consequences of impenitence and sin as the worm that never dies and the fire that is not quenched. He is the person who speaks in one sentence of the wicked going away into everlasting punishment and the righteous into life eternal. Mark 9, 43-48, Matthew 25, 46. Archbishop Tellitson on hell torment said, If God had intended to have told us that the punishment of wicked man shall have no end, the languages wherein the scriptures are written do hardly afford fuller and more certain words than those that are used in this case whereby to express a duration without end, and likewise, which is almost a peremptory decision of the thing, the duration of the punishment of wicked men, is in the very same sentence expressed by the very same word which is used for the duration of happiness of the righteous. See Horbury, Volume 2, page 42. Who does not remember the Apostle Paul's words about charity? Yet he is the very Apostle who says, The wicked shall be punished with everlasting destruction. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 Who does not know the spirit of love which runs through all St. John's Gospel and Epistles? Yet the beloved Apostle is the very writer in the New Testament who dwells most strongly in the book of Revelation on the reality and eternity of future woe. What shall we say to these things? Shall we be wise above that which is written? Shall we admit the dangerous principle that words in Scripture do not mean what they appear to mean? Is it not far better to lay our hands on our mouths and say, Whatever God has written must be true. Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. Revelation 16, verse 7 I cannot reconcile the non-eternity of punishment with the language of our prayer book. The very first petition in our matchless litany contains the sentence, from everlasting damnation, good Lord, deliver us. 
The Catechism teaches every child who learns it that whenever we repeat the Lord's Prayer, we desire our Heavenly Father to keep us from our ghostly enemy and from everlasting death. Even in our burial service, we pray at the graveside, Deliver us not into the bitter pains of eternal death. Once more I ask, What shall we say to these things? Shall our congregations be taught that even when people live and die in sin, we may hope for their happiness in a remote future? Surely the common sense of many of our worshippers would reply that if this is the case, prayer book words mean nothing at all. I lay no claim to any peculiar knowledge of Scripture. I feel daily that I am no more infallible than the Bishop of Rome, but I must speak according to the light which God has given to me, and I do not think I should do my duty if I did not raise a warning voice on this subject and try to put Christians on their guard. Six thousand years ago, sin entered into the world by the devil's daring falsehood. He shall not surely die, Genesis 3-4. At the end of six thousand years, the great enemy of mankind is still using his old weapon and trying to persuade men that they may live and die in sin and yet at some distant period may be finally saved. Let us not be ignorant of his devices. Let us walk steadily in the old paths. Let us hold fast the old truth and believe that as the happiness of the saved is eternal, so also is the misery of the lost. As Bishop Wordsworth discloses in the footnote, there is nothing that Satan more desires than that we should believe that he does not exist and that there is no such a place as hell and no such things as eternal torments. He whispers all this into our ears and he exults when he hears a layman and much more when he hears a clergyman deny these things, for then he hopes to make them and others his victims. Sermons on Future Rewards and Punishments Page 36 A. Let us hold it fast in the interest of the whole system of revealed religion. What was the use of God's Son becoming incarnate, agonizing in Gethsemane, and dying on the cross to make atonement, if men can be finally saved without believing on Him? Where is the slightest proof that saving faith in Christ's blood can ever begin after death? Where is the need of the Holy Ghost if sinners are at last to enter heaven without conversion and renewal of heart? Where can we find the smallest evidence that anyone can be born again and have a new heart if he dies in an unregenerate state? If a man may escape eternal punishment at last without faith in Christ or sanctification of the Spirit, sin is no longer an infinite evil and there was no need for Christ making an atonement. B. Let us hold it fast for the sake of holiness and morality. 
I can imagine nothing so pleasant to flesh and blood as the specious theory that we may live in sin and yet escape eternal perdition, and that although we serve diverse lusts and pleasures while we are here, we shall somehow or other all get to heaven hereafter. Only tell the young man who is wasting his substance in riotous living that there is a heaven at last, even for those who live and die in sin, and he is never likely to turn from evil. Why should he repent and take up the cross if he can get to heaven at last without trouble? See, finally, let us hold it fast for the sake of the common hopes of all God's saints. Let us distinctly understand that every blow struck at the eternity of punishment is an equally heavy blow at the eternity of reward. It is impossible to separate the two things. No ingenious theological definition can divide them. They stand or fall together. The same language is used the same figures of speech are employed when the Bible speaks about either condition. Every attack on the duration of hell is also an attack on the duration of heaven. Again, Bishop Wordsworth's Sermon on Future Rewards and Punishment says, If the punishment of the wicked is only temporary, such will also be the happiness of the righteous, which is repugnant to the whole teaching of Scripture. But if the happiness of the righteous will be everlasting, who will be equal to the angels and their bodies will be like the body of Christ, such also will be the punishment of the wicked. Page 31 It is a deep and true saying, with the sinner's fear, our hope departs. I turn from this part of my subject with a deep sense of its painfulness. I feel strongly with Robert McShane that it is a hard subject to handle lovingly. But I turn from it with an equally deep conviction that if we believe the Bible, we must never give up anything which it contains. From hard, austere, and unmerciful theology, good Lord, deliver us. If men are not saved, it is because they will not come to Christ. John 5.40 But we must not be wise above that which is written. No morbid love of liberality, so called, must induce us to reject anything which God has revealed about eternity. Men sometimes talk exclusively about God's mercy and love and compassion, as if he had no other attributes and leave out of sight entirely his holiness and his purity, his justice and his unchangeableness and his hatred of sin. Let us beware of falling into this delusion. It is a growing evil in these latter days. Low and inadequate views of the unutterable vileness and filthiness of sin and of the unutterable purity of the eternal God are fertile sources of error about man's future state. Let us think of the mighty being with whom we have to do as 
he himself declared his character to Moses, saying, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But let us not forget the solemn clause which concludes the sentence, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 Unrepented sin is an eternal evil and can never cease to be sin. And he with whom we have to do is an eternal God. The words of Psalm 145 are strikingly beautiful. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and of great mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. The Lord upholdeth all that fall, and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him, to all that call upon him in truth. The Lord preserveth all them that love him. Nothing can exceed the mercifulness of this language. But what a striking fact it is that the passage goes on to add the following solemn conclusion. All the wicked will he destroy. Psalm 145, verses 8 through 20. 3. The third thought which I commend to the attention of my readers is this. Our state in the unseen world of eternity depends entirely on what we are in time. The life that we live upon earth is short at the very best and soon gone. We spend our days as a tale that is told. What is our life? It is a vapor so soon passeth it away and we are gone. Psalm 90 Verse 9, James 4, verse 14. The life that is before us when we leave this world is an endless eternity, a sea without a bottom and an ocean without a shore. One day in thy sight, eternal God, is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Second Peter 3, verse 8. In that world, time shall be no more, but short as our life is here, and endless as it will be hereafter, it is a tremendous thought that eternity hinges upon time. Our lot after death depends, humanly speaking, on what we are while we are alive. It is written, God will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath. Romans 2, 6 and 7. We ought never to forget that we are all, while we live, in a state of probation. We are constantly sowing seeds which will spring up and bear fruit every day and hour in our lives. 
there are eternal consequences resulting from all our thoughts and words and actions of which we take far too little account. For every idle word that men speak, they shall give account in the day of judgment. Matthew twelve thirty six. Our thoughts are all numbered. Our actions are weighed. No wonder that St. Paul says, He that soweth to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Galatians 6, 8 In a word, what we sow in life we shall reap after death and reap to all eternity. There is no greater delusion than the common idea that it is possible to live wickedly and yet rise again gloriously, to be without religion in this world and yet to be a saint in the next. When the famous Whitfield revived the doctrine of conversion last century, it is reported that one of his hearers came to him after a sermon and said, It is all quite true, sir. I hope I shall be converted and born again one day, but... Not till after I am dead. I fear there are many like him. I fear the false doctrine of the Romish purgatory has many secret friends even within the pale of the Church of England. However carelessly men may go on while they live, they secretly cling to the hope that they shall be found among the saints when they die. They seem to hug the idea that there is some tensing purifying effect produced by death, and that whatever they may be in this life, they shall be found meet for the inheritance of the saints in the life to come. But it is all a delusion. According to Horbury, in the footnote, the scripture never represents the state of future misery as a state of progression and purification, or anything like analogous to a state of trial, where men may fit and qualify themselves for some better state of existence, but always as a state of retribution, punishment, and righteous vengeance, in which God's justice, a perfection of which some men seem to render no account, vindicates the power of His Majesty, His government, and His love by punishing those who have despised them. Horbury, Volume 2, page 183 Life is the time to serve the Lord, the time to ensure the great reward. The Bible teaches plainly that as we die, whether converted or unconverted, whether believers or unbelievers, whether godly or ungodly, so shall we rise again when the last trumpet sounds. There is no repentance in the grave. There is no conversion after the last breath is drawn. Now is the time to believe in Christ and to lay hold on eternal life. Now is the time to turn from darkness unto light and to make our calling and election sure. The night cometh when no man can work. As the tree falls, there it will lie. If we leave this world impenitent and unbelieving, we shall rise the same in the resurrection morning and find it had been good for us 
if we had never been born. In Archbishop Tillotson's Sermon on Philippians 3.20, the footnote declares, This life is the time of our preparation for our future state. Our souls will continue forever what we make them in this world. Such a taste and disposition of mind as a man carries with him out of this life, he shall retain in the next. It is true, indeed, heaven perfects those holy and virtuous dispositions which are begun here, but the other world alters no man as to his main state. He that is filthy will be filthy still, and he that is unrighteous will be unrighteous still. See Horbury, Volume 2, page 133. I charge every reader of this paper to remember this and to make a good use of time. Regard it as the stuff of which life is made and never waste it or throw it away. Your hours and days and weeks and months and years have all something to say to an eternal condition beyond the grave. What you sow in life, you are sure to reap in a life to come. As Holy Baxter says, it is now or never. Whatever we do in religion must be done now. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, 
as it is well known and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.